DBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Madam C.J. Walker died 100 years ago this month. In the early 20th century, she cemented her legacy by creating a hair salve designed for African-American women's hair. Her contributions to black beauty products are still felt in Georgia and across the country. GPB's Morning Edition host Leah Fleming spoke with Walker's great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles. Alelia is also a black hair historian and a journalist. Black hair is a multi-billion dollar industry. There are several companies and influencers that are benefiting from black women's love of just the right cream, gel, and special shampoo to make natural hair, braids, weaves, relaxed styles, extra fly. It's a thing for sure. There's history behind this. Long before the black girl magic of today, there was a woman named Madam C.J. Walker. She is credited with being the first woman to become a self-made millionaire in the early 1900s, and she did it by creating a line of hair care products. Today, in memory of the 100th anniversary of Walker's death, we are taking a moment to celebrate her legacy with her great-great-granddaughter, journalist and author Alelia Bundles, who wrote the book on Madam C.J. Walker. Good morning. Good morning. Delighted to be with you. So tell us about her early life. She was born on a plantation. She was. She was born in Delta, Louisiana uh, in December 1867 on the same plantation where her parents and older siblings had been enslaved. And she was the first child in her family born into freedom. Ah, okay. And then what inspired her to start this, this black hair line? Well, her early life was really difficult. She was orphaned at seven, married at 14 to escape the treatment of a cruel brother-in-law. And then she was widowed with a child at 20, moved up the river from Louisiana to St. Louis, where she had three older brothers who had preceded her in moving. They were barbers. So she was exposed to the hair care industry. But really her own problems of losing hair because of hygiene issues that were very common during the early, late 19th century, early 20th century, she was really going bald from scalp infections. She experimented with products. She learned some things from her brother. She, for a period of time, sold products for a woman who would become her big competitor, Annie Malone, and then developed her own formula with a shampoo and an ointment that healed the scalp infections and that grew hair back. Oh, do you know what was in it? Yes. I mean, I have the original formula, but you know, it, it's really, it's really very, very, sim- very simple. But at the time it was revolutionary. Essentially when people didn't have, most Americans didn't have indoor plumbing, they couldn't wash their hair or bathe. And we don't want to think about that too much, but that was the deal. Mm-hmm. And as a result, she had very bad dandruff and infections and the washing the hair, encouraging women to wash their hair more often, massaging the scalp and then applying an ointment that contained sulfur that healed the scalp, um, the scalp infections. And I will tell you, Bronner Brothers makes a very similar product there in Atlanta. So it's, some people still use it, but it's a heavy ointment that's like a Vaseline, but that was revolutionary at the time. 
Today, as you mentioned, we have all kinds of creams and gels and mousses and other things that are not as heavy. But then that was a big, uh, a big breakthrough. Yeah. And sulfur is like you're saying, it's still around and it still works. Exactly. It still works when you have that kind of you know level of infection. And it's really a centuries old remedy. You, it, it is mentioned in biblical times. It is mentioned in very early textbooks, but it wasn't commercially available when she started. And really, she because she was such a master marketer and salesperson and leader, that's how the infrastructure of her company developed that allowed her to become a millionaire. Yeah. So how did she do this? Because she wasn't uh, very, I mean, she wasn't educated, was she? That's right. No, 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 absolutely. She had very little formal education. You know, there were uh, the state legislature in Louisiana was not trying to educate black children during her <laughs> childhood. So uh, because of all of the racial violence and the horrible things that were going on. So she did not have much formal education. But as she began to develop her business and begin to get exposed, she became self-educated. She actually even hired a tutor who became the manager, a woman who became the manager of her factory, and she just soaked up energy. She had been exposed to uh, the more middle-class women of her church at St. Paul AME Church in St. Louis, and that began to give her some aspirations to become educated. They began to show her a vision of herself as something other than an uneducated, illiterate washerwoman. So she was self-educated. She went to night school. She had a private tutor. But it was really sort of watching how women work together collectively. Those women of her church were part of what was called the, the Club Women's Movement. And the National Association of Colored Women that was headed by Booker T. Washington's wife met in her church during the World's Fair in St. Louis in 1904. And she could see the power of women organizing. And she took that model and used it later to create her own national organization of her agents. Yeah. What did you learn about her when she became a millionaire? What, I mean, what, what was the reaction from people in uh, the community? Yeah, people were so proud of her. Mm-hmm. You know, this is pre-internet, pre-computer, right. pre-radio, pre-television. And so word had to travel in through newspapers and through word of mouth. And when she would visit a town or a city to sell her products, to demonstrate her products or have a convention. People were so excited that a black woman really just one generation out of slavery had been able to become such a successful entrepreneur and further had been able to employ other African-American women and give them independent income so they didn't have to make They didn't have to wash somebody else's clothes and clean somebody else's house and work in somebody else's field. They could be empowered to be economically independent for themselves and their families. Yeah, she didn't just take this money as a millionaire and and, and just stay where she was, but she actually became a philanthropist as well. That, that's absolutely right. And that I love that about her, that we that when the story gets taken beyond, she created a hair care company, a successful hair care company, employed people. That is extremely important. Mm-hmm. But that she used her money and her influence to employ women, to give back to the community, both as a patron of the arts who supported black musicians and artists, as a political activist who contributed money to the NAACP's anti-lynching movement, which was kind of Black Lives Matter 1.0, much money to African-American schools and colleges. So she really wanted to 
set the stage. And, you know, it does make you think about what Robert Smith did at Morehouse uh, yes. this month with giving back. And I think that kind of philanthropy for truly wealthy African-Americans is something that Madam Walker helped to set the stage for. Mm. So Netflix is set to premiere the series on her life, and it stars Oscar winner Octavia Spencer. Couldn't have picked a better woman, in my opinion. And mm-hmm. it's produced by LeBron James, yes, the basketball mm-hmm. star. And it's based on your biography that you did in 2001 called uh, On Her Own Ground, right? Right. So my book, On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, was optioned for uh, a Netflix series. And, you know, it's very interesting. Hollywood doesn't really stick to the book. So I'm I'm glad that my book is was read by them and that they are learned something about it. But I think the story that they're telling is really going to be very, very fictional. So uh, um, and I and I hope it will give me an opportunity to have people read my book and look at some of the nonfiction, um, accurate stories that we're doing about about Madam Walker. But yes, it will expose a lot of people to uh, to Madam Walker's story. Okay, so this is, um, it, you know, I was wondering if you were actually a, an executive producer of this project or involved in it. Yeah, I'm a I'm a consulting producer, so I'm mm-hmm. you know reviewing scripts and you know so. But as I say, you know, it's Hollywood, and they really. Um, <laughs> have their own way of, t- of telling a story. So it's di- it's not a documentary for sure. Okay. And there are a lot of fictional characters who've been added and made up scenes and that kind of thing. So I, I, I don't know that it will tell exactly the story that I personally would have told or that I tell in the book, but it will expose people to Madam Walker's name. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Alelia Bundles, author of the book On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker. Let's talk about hair for a minute. And I want to get your thoughts on this. Um, Back in 2017, a black rapper by the name of French Montana uh, got his delicate ego injured by some criticism on social media by a black woman. And he immediately clapped back at her by attacking her hair, calling it nappy. And I'm wondering, what is it about black women's hair that causes uh, so much drama? You know, that is that the, the $64,000 question. <laughs> Our hair is so beautiful. And the culture, the society in which we live has European standards of beauty as the end all and be all. And so we constantly need to remind ourselves that what we have growing out of our hair, out of our heads, is something that is valuable. And our hair is very complicated because we, our hair is a mixture of all of the ethnicities and races that are mixed in our blood. So any, in any particular person may have three or four or five different textures going on. So it is, our hair requires moisture. So it is not always easy to manage it. Fortunately, there are now tons and tons of products that provide moisture that allow us to Uh, style it in different ways. So I think it's really the tyranny of European standards of beauty imposed upon the beauty of black women, and we need to emerge and claim our beauty. And if we let other people define us and and define it as negative, then we need to be fighting back against that. Mm. And perhaps we need to really be financially benefiting off of all of these products that are created for our hair. Definitely. And, you know, there I have I am old enough to have watched this cycle. I grew up in a household with two parents who were executives of hair care companies. My mother 
was vice president of the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company because that was her family. My father became president of another black hair care company called Summit Laboratories. So our summer vacations were centered around going to hair shows. So I have watched this industry since the 1950s, and I've watched as companies like Summit Laboratories, Johnson Products, Bronner Brothers, and Bronner Brothers is still owned by the family, but other companies were bought by the big companies, L'Oreal, Alberta Culver, Revlon, and then um, subsumed, and that um, the power was taken away, and then it was disrupted again by chemical hair straighteners, then disrupted by the Afro, then disrupted by weaves, and back and forth and back and forth in Korean ownership of of the beauty supply stores. But it is very interesting as YouTube and the natural hair movement has reemerged, because this is not the first time, the number of um, women especially who are making their own hair products and using the internet. So I think we're seeing a new disruption with more black ownership again. And then when you look at someone like Richelieu Dennis, the CEO and founder of Sundial Brands with Shea Moisture, Nubian Heritage, and Madam C.J. Walker Beauty Culture. Rich founded that company with his grandmother's recipe from Liberia and Sierra Leone. He recently, as many people know, sold the company to Unilever. He's still CEO. It's still the company sort of went over just as many companies that Unilever do. But what he did, which is revolutionary, is to stay involved in the leadership of the company, but also to use some of those proceeds to buy Essence so that Essence would be black owned. Mm. And I want you to talk about this. Your great, great grandmother's uh, mansion in New York has been turned into an incubator for black female entrepreneurs. Talk a little bit about that and what it really means even to you. You know, I, I tell you, Leah, it gives me chills when I think about this full circle moment in this hundredth year of her death that Richelieu, who's from Liberia originally, knew about Madam Walker when he was growing up and when he came to college in the United States, wondered what had happened to her company, ended up buying the trademark to develop the products, and now, with his incredible success, sees the vision of inspiring other women. So I have visited the house off and on since the 1980s through various owners, and I am totally excited Mm -hmm. and thrilled that it now is going to be an incubator for black women. And when I walk into that house, Mm -hmm. it is magic. And when other people walk into that house, they feel the magic of this woman who came from the cotton fields of the South, who became a millionaire and who built her home in what was then the wealthiest community in America. Yeah. What are some of the the lessons do you think we can still take away from your great-great-grandmother, her story, 100 years later? She would, the first thing she'd say is you have to have a good product. You have to start out with a great product and then you have to market it. If nobody knows about it, it doesn't really matter if it's a great product. And then she would say, you must give back. At her convention in 1917, her first national convention of her sales agents, two years before Mary Kay was born, she gave prizes to the women who con- who uh, sold the most products, but she also gave prizes to the women who contributed the most to charity. And she said to them, I want you to show others that as Walker agents, you care not just about yourselves, but about others. Your first duty is to humanity. 
And at the end of the convention, the women sent a telegram to President Woodrow Wilson urging him to support legislation to make lynching a federal crime. Mm. So her lessons are have a great product, market it, and then use your power and your influence and your wealth to make your community better. Mm. That is really powerful. Yeah. Here in Atlanta, uh, some people might not know that we actually have a Madam C.J. Walker Museum. Um, Talk a little bit about the history of that. Could we learn more about her by going there? Sure, absolutely. So Reese DeForest has done such a fabulous job of creating that space, both with the with words, radio station with and with a salon that was open, I believe, in the 1940s originally by two women who had been graduates of one of the Walker Beauty Schools. And he knows his history. He really tries to educate the community. And I'm, I actually have never visited the, the um, museum. I've been talking to him ever since he was planning it mm-hmm. and have seen tons of pictures and videos. One day I'm going to get there. Uh, but I'm, I really my hat is off to him for the work that he is doing in the community and the people who have been exposed to Madam Walker's story as a result. That is Morning Edition host Leah Fleming speaking with Alelia Bundles, the great-granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker. Coming up, the Royal Crunk Jazz Orchestra is rolling in deep at the Atlanta Jazz Festival. We'll get a preview after the break. <laughs> 